Thank you for tuning in to The Grammar of Grief with your host, Uma Girish, the show that is dedicated to creating a safe space to discuss the big life questions around grief, loss, death, and dying. Now, here's your host, Uma Girish. You're listening to the Grammar of Grief podcast, and I'm your host, Uma Girish. Today, my guest is Marissa Moss. Marissa has written more than 50 children's books, from picture books to middle grade and young adult novels. Best known for her series, Amelia's Notebook, Marissa's books are popular with teachers and children alike. Barbed Wire Baseball, her latest picture book, won the California Book Award Gold Medal. In 2012, Moss founded Creston Books. The first four books came out in fall 2013 to strong reviews, including a Kirkus star. Since then, the small press has earned starred reviews from Publishers Weekly, School Library Journal, Kirkus, and Booklist. You can learn more about Marissa and her work at marissamoss.com. In our conversation, Marissa and I will discuss her latest book, Last Things, a graphic memoir of love and loss, written mostly for adults. In this book, Marissa tells the story of her husband, Harvey Stahl's ALS diagnosis, his rapid deterioration, and the heartbreak of living with a loved one who's struggling through the simple tasks of daily living. Harvey died just seven months after his diagnosis, leaving Marissa and their boys Simon, Elias, and Asa, who were 14, 10, and 6 when their father died. Welcome, Marissa. I'm very grateful you're here to talk about your book. Well, thank you so much for having me. First of all, let me just make a confession. This was my first graphic book. I've never read a graphic <laughs> novel ever. Well, you are exactly the kind of person I was hoping to reach. I, I, I get that from a lot of people that don't that don't like the graphic format because it's dizzy and it's hard to follow. So I tried to make this as clean, clear, and accessible as possible. And that it truly was. So I loved it. Also, the message of the book drew me in um, because, as you know, I work with women who are grieving a loss. And when I saw that this was a memoir in graphic form, I said, wow, this is something new. I've never seen anything like it before, and I had to read it. So let me begin with how your book opens. Your book opens with a gratitude list. Uh, You talk about the things you were grateful for, a glass of good wine, your boys sleeping peacefully, a marriage that holds your life together, a full moon. And then you ask the question, what is there to be grateful for when that boulder drops down and smashes your perfect life? And this is the question most of my clients ask me. How can I find gratitude when nothing in my life is working? I'm in so much pain and sadness. How would you respond to someone like that? Well, I I know exactly how it feels. Um, And how, how I handled it myself was to remember to hold on to the good parts of what we had had together. It's what kept me sane through the whole harrowing illness is that Harvey was such a wonderful husband and such an incredible father that I was grateful for any time with him. 
no matter how short and limited it was. If I had to do it all over again, I would marry him and go through it all over again because the time I had with him was worth it was worth the the horrors of the illness. And that's I think what you have to hold on to. It's it's hard to do it when you're in the middle of it because you feel like your whole life is being devastated, but you have to remember that you had a life that was worth something and that you can come through it. You will come through it. You won't have the whole life again, but there'll be something. There'll be another side. Yeah, that is such great advice because I think you have to find the smallest things in everyday life, like, you know, a cup of coffee that you're drinking or the the mattress you're lying on, or you know, little things you have to hold on to when the rest of your life is falling apart and you can't really see or feel that rush of gratitude. But I think it's a matter of um, fo- focusing and forcing yourself to hold on to something that's good every single day. Exactly. And I have to say that sometimes it was the little things that most threw me into despair, like just going shopping. I would feel envious of everybody else who was buying their vegetables because I thought their lives were so much better than mine. Of course, I don't know what they were going through, but going through the hell that I was going through, I was just envious that they had a normal life. And so the little things can also make you feel like you're not grateful. But one of the ways I think to hold on to perspective is to remember what you do have, even if it isn't, it can't, it, maybe it's a cup of coffee, but maybe it's something bigger. Like I held on to Harvey was dying, but my boys were okay. My boys were okay. My boys were okay. That was kind of a mantra for me. If anything had happened to them, I would have completely fallen apart. But there's got to be something in your life like that. There are other people. You don't love just one person. You love other people, and you have to remember them as well. I think that helps put it in perspective. It does. It truly does. So I want to read something that you say in your preface. Um, This is what you write. When my husband was first diagnosed with ALS, we didn't have time to come to terms with the diagnosis, but were immediately plunged into a steep descent, ricocheting from crisis to crisis. I needed to shape the whirlwind we had lived through so I could understand it better, so I could see that I had done what I could and move beyond the inevitable guilt. I'd love for you to speak about this whole idea that caregivers struggle with, which is, I wish I had done something differently. I'm not doing enough. I'm failing at this. Um, You know, instead of providing solace and comfort, I'm not being strong enough for my loved one. How did you deal with that? I think it's a setup that our society gives us because we are fed this steady diet from Hollywood and news stories that caregivers are saints and that just sets you up for failure because nobody's a saint. It's hard, hard work emotionally and physically. It's a really difficult task to take care of somebody who's terminally ill or who's seriously ill and you're set up to fail. And I felt like I was always flailing. Like I could not get a grasp on the situation because as soon as I mastered one task, something else would come up. There was always something horrible happening. And that was partly because he had an incredibly steep and quick decline, I think more than a lot of other diseases. But I think it's just the situation that we, as a culture, make it impossible for caregivers to be human. We are human. We're just regular people thrust into impossible situations. And I struggled for so long with all the mistakes I made. And I made a ton because there's no way not to. And it partly was one of the reasons I wrote the book was to forgive myself and realize that I had tried, I really tried 
And what more can you do but do your best? You can't expect perfection. I don't expect it from any other part of my life. I, as a writer, I revise, revise, revise. I know I'm going to make mistakes. But when you're a caregiver, you feel like you don't dare make mistakes because somebody else's life is at stake. The risks are so high. And that's part of it. That's part of why we feel like we have to be perfect because our loved one is going through something so horrific. And we want to do whatever we can to make that easier. But that puts us in an impossible situation. And I think it's really corrosive. And it is impossible to sustain. So if you're with somebody who's sick or dying over a long time, I've seen it with my friends, that you can just implode as a caregiver. You have to care for yourself as well. Exactly, because so many people don't even know how long they're going to be in their caregiving role. There is no finite um, timeline, right. some of them, you know, and it's just such an ongoing um, stressful situation. So I like what you say about we're just ordinary people thrust into impossible situations, and it makes no sense for us to blame ourselves because then we are dipping into that well of energy which is diminishing anyway. Exactly. And I think it's not its not just our fault that we blame ourselves, because I have to say, I think people blame us, other people. I mean, I know that one of the things yeah. I did to stay sane was I swam every morning. I swam with a master's team, and I clung to that hour I had just to myself. I wasn't taking care of kids. I wasn't taking care of Harvey. I wasn't dealing with insurance companies. I wasn't trying to get work done. I wasn't trying to get laundry done. I was just doing something for myself. But I know that there were people, family members, who judged me and felt like I was abandoning Harvey for that hour, that I wasn't doing what I should be doing, which was spending every minute on him. And that's, that just sets you up. You can't possibly do that. And I, there's no judgment that I have on those people that they had those expectations, but I had to take it away from myself. I didn't want to internalize and own that feeling of guilt because I had enough to feel guilty about, but I felt I gave myself permission to have that hour every morning, and I don't feel – that's one thing I don't feel bad about. That's something I felt like I really needed that, despite what other people thought in terms of my being a bad wife for doing that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I just loved your swim ritual. It's almost like as I was reading the book, as a reader, I was feeling a sense of reprieve every time you were swimming in the morning. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that is also – that. That's exactly what I was trying for. And I think that's something the graphic format allows. Because I first wrote this as a traditional memoir, just text, and it was just unrelenting. It was too sad, too dark, too too claustrophobic. But when I added the art, that opened things up. It gave more of a sense of the personality of my boys and of Harvey. And I could put in things like the swimming in a way that gives that visual relief so you get a break. Because otherwise it's just, it is too unrelenting. Yep, yep. So in those panels where you were just in the water, I felt like I could take a few breaths before we got on to the next <laughs> part of what was going to happen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And that's yeah. how it was for me. I needed to take a few breaths. Exactly that. Right. And I think uh, we find it so hard to accept this idea that if when we do something for ourselves, we have a little more to give to this difficult situation and the person we love. That's such a hard idea for so many of us to grasp. I think that's especially true for women. And let's be honest, most caregivers are women. And we are taught that to be good caregivers, to be good mothers, we're supposed to be selfless. And 
that kind of selflessness can just erase you and leave you with nothing to give. So you're right. You're absolutely right. You have to take care of yourself, nurture yourself, or you have nothing left. Absolutely. Um, one of the things I love about your book, Marissa, is that it is so real. I mean, you don't you don't sugarcoat anything. You make it real. You say it like it is. And so that's that's one of the favorite things about uh, for me about your book. Um, you write when Harvey was four to five months into his diagnosis. I'm not caught up in a gauzy, made-for-TV special where people become noble and wise in the face of catastrophe. I don't feel more spiritual either. I don't even feel like a better person truly appreciating life. I feel like a wet rag, exhausted, used up, hollowed out. There's nothing left to me at all. This isn't how it's supposed to be. So I love how you never romanticize caregiving or death. Can you speak about that? Well, it's one of the big reasons why I wrote the book, because I felt like that was what made the situation that I was dealing with even harder, was this, what I call a Tuesdays with Maury syndrome, this Hollywood notion that the person who's dying is going to become this Yoda with pearls of wisdom dropping from their mouths, and you as a caregiver are going to become this noble, saintly, haloed person, and that wasn't what happened. Harvey became very angry, and he was shut off in denial, and part of it was he had to come to terms with a very difficult diagnosis. And uh, the neurologist had told us that most people take a year to just grapple with the diagnosis of ALS. And we didn't have a year. We had no time to come to terms with it. So I, I don't blame Harvey for reacting the way he did. He every morning would wake up with a little bit less of himself, which was terrifying. What I do blame is our culture, which makes us feel like if we're not sharing in this nobility, that we're doing something wrong. And it's part of the well, I call it the blame and shame of catastrophic mm -hmm. illness. Because when you are sick or you, with, when you have a bad disease, in America we tend to think we did something wrong. Like other people look at you like, what did you, you didn't eat right, you didn't exercise, you exposed yourself to something. Well, you know, bad things just happen to good people. It's totally arbitrary. And I think people want to protect themselves from that notion. They want to feel like it can't happen to them. They'll eat the right food. They'll do the right exercises. They won't get this disease. And so I understand the psychology of it, but it makes the person who's dealing with the illness feel even worse about it because then you feel like you're apart from the rest of humanity because you've got this disease and you're somehow now other. And I know it's hard to see somebody who's graphically dying. That's not easy. But I think cultures that incorporate it are more humane and that recognize that it's difficult are more humane because it's hard enough to deal with the disease, but when you're feeling like you're not living up to whatever that reality is supposed to be, this Hollywood myth of how illness ennobles us, mm -hmm. that just kind of adds insult to injury. It's already hard enough. And then you feel like, oh, I'm not even doing this right, you know? I can't do the caregiving right, and I'm not even being yeah. a better person because of it. Yeah, you feel the need to conform to some kind of a stereotype which doesn't exist anyway. And I think exactly. Yeah. I think the success of your book, um, and I, I have this feeling it will be successful primarily because you expose the ugly, messy parts of caregiving. You just speak about how difficult it is to be compassionate and nice when your loved one is being angry. And that's the reality most people are dealing with, except no one wants to talk about it. Or very quickly, they'll say, you know, my husband is being so angry but, you know, he's ill and he's, uh, he's having a difficult time with it. 
so I have to be kinder. You know, you kind of um, put it in this nice little halo, as you call it, and instead you don't allow yourself to feel how vulnerable you're feeling. I think that's exactly right, and it's that's the shame part where you feel like you are ashamed that you, your husband isn't being this wonderful person that they're supposed to be, and then you feel like it's your fault because you're not being the wonderful caregiver you're supposed to be. It's a vicious circle. It really is. And I think it's okay. way more common that people who are sick and dying are not nice, and I don't, you know, they are focusing on dying. Their attention is elsewhere. Yeah. They're not, then you, that's just the way it is. And I think we have to recognize that, that we can't expect them to be these noble saints. Right. I also love the idea of the, the loss that you talk about. You say, I don't think of our last kiss, our last I love you, because I assume there will be others. We remember first, are aware of them by their very nature, but last things sneak up on you, slip away unnoticed, unmarked, unless they're part of a big ritual event like graduation, moving, divorce, going off to war. Harvey and I share a lot of love, and we don't even know it. I thought that was so profound and so beautiful. So how did you, how did you hold these loves in your perspective? Well, I think that's what you do afterwards. It's part of coming to terms with losing somebody, because like I said, you don't know it's your last kiss or it's the last time you'll say, I love you. And I have to say, one of the things that I've done since losing Harvey is when, when I say goodbye to anybody on the phone or in person who I love, I say, I love you, because you never know what's going to happen. And the last thing I want to leave them with is an I love you. I don't want to feel that guilt that I felt with Harvey that, I mean, I did kiss him goodnight and say I love you before the night he died, but... Mm. You want to make sure you leave them with something positive. I think that's something you do just regret. Right. You can't help You're it. You're so right about that. Can't help. Yeah. And how how um, aware we are of the first, right? I mean, somehow we we record those moments, we take pictures, we celebrate those moments, but we have little awareness that something could be a last moment. So I really like that you bring our attention to that possibility. It, it made me think about, you know, how do I say goodbye? How do I, um, how do I leave when I've had friend with, uh, when I've had coffee with a friend? How do I leave that time together? Um, do we exactly. end on a good yes. note? It just makes me pay attention to that, which I think is really beautiful. Yeah, exactly, and, and that's what I was thinking. And what I, you know, what I do, what I've incorporated into my life. I mean, I think these things change you. And then you have to choose how you want them to change you. Do you want to become more fearful or do you want to become a bigger person? I mean, I'm trying to be bigger, not smaller. Because I think things like this can really diminish you. It can eat away at you. Right. Now, when Harvey died, you had the framework of uh, the Jewish death rituals to give you a sense of perspective, a sense of sanity, a sense of just recognizing that this thing happened and that you needed to be there to be present to it. And I come from India. I find that many of the rituals that we have when someone dies are very close to uh, your rituals, sitting Shiva and really taking time to be with friends and community and everyone reminding you of what happened. I find that fascinating that there are such close parallels between our two cultures. Can you speak to why um, the Western culture has such an anathema towards death and what can we do to make it 
more part of our everyday conversation and a, a more inclusive experience, if you will. I, I think it is a, it's a huge problem with America. We don't deal well with death, and we want it to happen over there off stage where we can't see it. It's, it's not a recognition that it's a passage that happens to us all and that we're all going to die, so how do we make these deaths good deaths? And I think what, what you're speaking about with Indian culture and, and Jewish culture, and someone was talking to me about Greek culture, a lot of more ancient cultures who've dealt with death for a long time recognize that what you need when you're dealing with death is you need permission to grieve and recognition of that grief. And that was something that I was surprised by the powerfulness of that in Judaism, because you are given a place to mourn. You are recognized as a mourner. And in fact, every Shabbat, every Saturday service, there's a time in the prayers where people who are mourning can stand up and say the prayer for the dead. So you have a chance every week to be recognized as a mourner. And I don't mean people can go up to you and say, I'm, I'm sorry about your loss, but I mean, you have a place to put your grief, to, to say to yourself, I'm allowed to cry here. Because in American culture, we basically want you to cry away. Don't, I don't want to see your tears. Get over it. The American myth is you buck up and you go on. You, sh- you shoulder yourself forward and you don't let yourself be overwhelmed by grief. But stuffing it down like that, I think is incredibly unhealthy. And being allowed to grieve and to share your grief and to feel like you are not invisible as you grieve is incredibly helpful. I felt so held and supported by Judaism in a way I just did not expect. And it made me wonder, how do, how do people handle it who don't have a culture who give it to them, who gives them this place to grieve? I think it's You're much so harder. Right, it makes it harder. It, it does make it very hard. I mean, this is something I hear from my clients all the time, that they don't have a space in which they, they, can, they have permission to grieve, but they're seen and honored as someone who's lost a loved one. They have to hide their grief. They have to cry in the bathroom. They have to wear their yeah. armor going into work and pretend to be normal. After the first time when someone says, I'm sorry for your loss, it's understood that we never talk about it, and life yes. moves on. And there's also the stigma. There's the stigma of the word widow. I mean, widow or widower. I mean, it's just not a word people want to hear. And in fact, when um, when my oldest son was filling out college applications, he filled it out as if his father were still alive, partly because he didn't want the stigma being the kid with the dying or dead dad. Kids feel this acutely. Mm -hmm. But also, there was no place to put down that I was widowed. Your parents were either single, divorced, married. So widowed, widowers, you just erased. I thought that was astonishing. What is astonishing? I did not know. Isn't that that horrific? Like you aren't allowed that status? I mean, excuse me, my husband just is erased? I'm now a single mother? No, I am a single mother. In fact, I'm single parenting, but my husband did exist. I want that acknowledged. You had a marriage. Before you became a single yes, mother. exactly, exactly. And you acknowledge that with divorce. You can say you're divorced, but you can't yeah. say you're widowed. What does that say about our culture? Wow. We need big changes here. We really do. We do. We do. Yeah. So I'm glad you and people like you who are writing books about these things and bringing it out into the open, um, you know, the ugliness, the messiness, the fact that no one talks about it, the fact that people give you weird stares when you're out shopping or uh, in the parking lot, you know, I think this is necessary to bring 
this conversation into the open so it's in your face and makes people think about it. Even if people are uncomfortable where they are, it at least opens their minds and their hearts to what could be possible, a different reality they could embrace. So I'm grateful for that reason. I now, before so, we... one of the things I want to talk about the yeah. stigma because there's that stigma to death and dying. And like I said, that mm-hmm. being the, the widow or being the kid with the dying dad. And we don't want to, we especially don't want to talk about kids losing parents. And I was hoping this book would be read by as a young adult book by teenagers because far more kids lose parents than we as a culture like to admit. I mean, both two of my sons, my younger two sons, both had friends in high school who lost a parent. And they were um, very good resources for these other boys because they had somebody who knew what it was like and they didn't feel it was the only person they could talk to and not feel judged. Mm. I think that's a really hard thing to do for a kid. It is. when We don't, we don't make it know, easy. We don't make it easy when they live in a culture where they have no permission to talk about it. Um, I mean, we as adults struggle, so how can kids make any sense of what's going on? It's really hard. Exactly. Now, you wrote this book almost 16 years after your husband died. So the boys are all grown up today. Tell, tell me what they're doing today and where are they? <laughs> they are grown up. It's kind of astonishing. Yeah, it took me so long, by the way, to write this book because I started writing it right after Harvey died, which is why the memories are so vivid and the language is uh, very precise. But I wrote it as a traditional memoir, and for 10 years I was writing it just with text, and it was not working because of the reasons I said. It's just too dark and claustrophobic. And it was only when I figured out I could turn it into a graphic novel that it opened up. So that's why it took me so long. And also I think I needed the distance because you can't yeah. you can't see these things clearly when you're right close to it. You're just in the recovery mode, really. But my my big goal throughout Harvey's illness and after his death was to keep our family strong. And I'm proud to say that we did not fall apart. And my boys are very close and they are all doing well. They, um, the oldest is a uh, art director, book designer in Oakland. The middle one uh, just graduated from SAIS, the School for Advanced International Studies in DC. And he has a job with a consulting firm in DC. And the youngest, Asa, who people tell me when they read this book, the one they feel for is Asa. They want to know what happened to Asa. (laughs) Poor Asa. So Asa is now 21 years old. And uh, he just started grad school in astrophysics at Rice in Houston. So he's been (laughs) been dealing. I know, I know. I'm so proud of him. His dad would be so proud of him. But look, he just survived his first hurricane, which was named Harvey. So I wasn't, I have to say, I was not too worried about him. I thought nothing named Harvey can hurt you. Harvey will not let anything bad happen to you. And he was fine throughout the hurricane. The other grad student housing was evacuated, but he was okay. I know. I thought, what what are the odds that his first hurricane in Houston would be named Harvey? Come on. I know. The universe works in strange ways. It certainly does. But it's so good to hear that the boys are all doing well and I loved how you ended the book, which is you talk about um, how every year after Harvey died, you you take a family vacation and you do something, you know, you, your vacations have become different from how they used to be. So I feel like you created traditions of your own 
and created a new beginning, a new reality for you and the boys, which is so powerful. So I wonder if you could speak to that because so many families are struggling with that piece. Like, we've lost this life we had. What next? I think that's exactly it. You have to you have to create new traditions to rebuild so that you have something. And I think it's bigger than your family, too. Like, for my extended family, my I have um, – brothers and sisters who live in the Bay Area near me. And for them, the loss, they also felt a huge loss with Harvey. And what we started because of that was we do a, what we, we call it the Moss Family Shabbat. Once a month, we meet at one of our houses, all the families together, and have a Shabbat dinner, so a Sabbath dinner for Jews. And this is something we didn't do when Harvey was alive, but it was something we needed to do after he died. So it's a way of reconnecting and reaffirming and that's what the trips are with my sons it's a way of reconnecting and reestablishing closeness so i think it's important to look for those ways because you can't recreate what you had with the loved one who's gone but you can do something else that broadens your world and still fills it with family ritual and tradition because i think that stabilizes us it supports us it sustains so us well, Marissa, I'm so glad you wrote this book because this book really needs to be out there today, educating people, telling them what caregiving is like, what life and death look like, and how important it is to have these conversations so we can be better prepared when um, our loved ones uh, reach that time of life because, as we all know, everything that's born must die, and we must ready ourselves for that stage in our loved ones' lives as well as our own. So I think that your book is a real gift. I'm so grateful I got to read it. Um, I didn't know about your work prior to this, so I feel very, very grateful <laughs> that I was drawn to your book and your work. Oh, so thank, thank you. you so much. Well, I'm hoping also people will read it so that they can support other people who are caregivers because no one knows what to say or do, but it's sometimes something really simple like just picking up dinner for somebody or buying a quart of milk or offering to pick up prescriptions. I mean, you don't have to offer the world, but those small gestures mean a lot when you're in the middle of this. And so I'm hoping people won't shy away from reaching out because, like I said, Americans are awkward and uncomfortable, so they just tend to step back. Like, I don't know what the right thing to say, so I won't say anything. And sometimes you don't have to say a big thing, just a small gesture. Yeah, I recently wrote a blog post on um, five things you can do to help people who are grieving. And, um, you know, in that I offer them tips about, you know, it can be pretty simple. If you don't know what to say, most of us are comfortable doing something. And here is a list of things you could be doing for someone who's grieving a loss or someone who's um, caregiving. You know, you can you can go in and fold the laundry. You can walk the dog. You right. can buy groceries. You can make dinner. These are things that come more easily to most of us than knowing what to say or listen to exactly. the story of loss. Yeah, I think that's it. People want to give, be given a small, concrete task that's easy to accomplish, yeah. and it's nothing to you to do, but it means everything to the person receiving it. Exactly. Well, thanks again, Marissa, for honoring us on the Grammar of Grief with your book, your presence, your story. This is such a precious book, and I hope all you listeners will buy a copy. Buy a copy for someone who's grieving a loss if you don't want to buy it for yourself. This is such a wonderful book. And thank you for tuning in to The Grammar of Grief. My website is umagirish.com. And if you haven't read my memoir, 
Losing Amma, Finding Home, a memoir about love, loss, and life detours. It's available on Amazon. I'll talk to you again. Connect with Uma at www.umagirish.com. That's U-M-A-G-I-R-I-S-H.com for grief guidance and inspiration.